Lamentations is a book in the Bible that is easily forgotten. It comes between uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, mostly because we think that Jeremiah wrote it. The book's full of this disturbing and painful imagery. And maybe part of the reason why it's so easily forgotten is that we'd like, at times, to forget about those tragic, disturbing, and painful parts of our, of our lives. Lamentations is written after the, the total destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians, almost six centuries before Jesus was born. And there's a, there's a big part of the book that gets lost in translation. While the content grieves and laments the violence and the humiliation of God's people, graphically describing the tragic events of Jerusalem's fall, most of Lamentations is written in a, in a strange, weirdly beautiful acrostic form. There's five chapters. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 each have 22 verses, two lines in each verse, and the first word of each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 begins with the first letter, Aleph, and then verse 2 begins with the second letter, Beit, and then verse 3, the third letter, Gimel, and so on all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. And chapter 3 is, is just like that. It just has three lines instead of two for each of the verses. And of course, we don't read any of this because none of this translates into English. So even though what's described is very graphic and horrendous, it's presented in this very orderly form of Hebrew poetry. Actually, the most orderly form of Hebrew poetry that exists today. A series of well-thought-out, carefully written poetic laments over the fate of God's people. But then there's chapter 5. It's not orderly. It's not an acrostic. It's still a poetic lament, but it's just very different from what came before it. Why? Well, we really don't know. I mean, maybe Jeremiah's discipline failed him at the end, and his raw emotions and, and agony could no longer be contained in this tight, orderly form. Whatever the case, all we know is that the tenor of the writing changes. So verse 1, chapter 5, it begins. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. And with this, Jeremiah begins to pray. And that, that's really what chapter 5 is. It's, it's a prayer. The destruction of Jerusalem is over and, and Jeremiah asks God, now what? Now what do we do? What's next? You go to the end of the chapter, verse 21, and, and you read Jeremiah pleading, restore us to yourself, Lord. Help us to know what to do now. This is a story of such personal crisis and pain. When you're going through a time like that, when you've just experienced a crisis, a, a, a tragedy, your own time of destruction, the very best thing that you can do 
is to take the next step, to do the next thing. You just make it to another day. And sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is, is to wake up, to get out of bed, to do the next thing, even if you don't want to. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Have you been in a spot like that before? Are you in one right now? When you're coming out of a crisis, remember this. The most important step you can take is the next one. All of us at some point in our lives find ourselves on the other side of a tragedy. We look at the smoldering rubble around us. The crisis is over, but the destruction is still there. And we wonder, just like Jeremiah, now what? What do I do next? And chapter 5 can help us with that question. It gives us actually three practical steps that we can take, and then two important encouragements to remember. So what's the next thing you can do when you come out of a crisis, a hard time, or a difficult situation? Well, number one, you have to figure out how to pray honestly. Let me read the first six verses. Remember, Lord, what has happened to us. Look, see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We've become fatherless, our mothers are widows. We must buy the water we drink. Our wood can be only had at a price. Those who pursue us are at our heels. We are weary and find no rest. We submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. You simply put, they're in a horrible situation. And Jeremiah prays this this blunt, honest, gut-wrenching prayer. Remember us, God. Now, some may think that that's kind of strange because isn't God supposed to know everything well he's not saying remember something you forgot God but instead he's saying please God recall your promises to us because I know you can do something about this I think the temptation in situations like this is that our prayers are are all planned and prepackaged. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I do that a lot. I think about what I'm going to say when I lead you in prayer on a Sunday morning. But our Sunday morning prayers are a lot different from the laments of Lamentations or from some of the Psalms. We're in this private moment here in Lamentations, this gut-wrenching cry to God. And you may think that that's not spiritual or or that it should come out in a better way. But I'm saying, as somebody who's been in it before, if you're going to get through it, you've got to figure out how to get along with God. You've got to buy a journal or, or take a drive or go for a walk in the woods or, or go for a run. And you need to say, God, we're going to do this. So what gives? Why? Why are you letting this happen? And maybe you think you shouldn't do that. 
well, then you're going to have to rip out a lot of pages from your Bible. Because about 30% of just the Psalms alone are complaints. You know, there's no intimacy in marriage without honesty. I think we know that. And the same with God. And God can handle it. God already knows that you're mad at Him. It's no shocker to God. You grow in intimacy when you're honest with each other. Now, just because you're honest with God about your questions doesn't mean you're going to get an answer. You may never find an answer. You may never know on this side of heaven what God is up to. But that's not the point. The point is being able to honestly see what is happening in you. Suffering, pain, tragedy, disappointment, trials, all can peel away the layers of our lives quickly to expose the deepest center if we're willing to go there. Suffering is sobering. So are you willing to enter into that sober reality with God and share the emotions, the pain, the fear, and the doubt? The next step to take is to learn how to pray honestly. Number two, you must also learn how to confess sin specifically. Verse 7 says, Our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. And you can turn to the New Testament. 1 John says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. A little further on in Psalm 51, it says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do for me, God, what I can't do for myself. Help me to trust you again. To take the next step, we need to learn how to pray honestly and need to learn how to confess sin specifically. And we also need to learn how to worship passionately. And that's what Jeremiah does in verse 19. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. He begins to worship God. Now, worship isn't just a good idea. It's indispensable. If you don't learn how to do this, you might not get out. And I see it. People get stuck. And they don't get out of a situation because they don't know how to, they don't learn how to worship God. And you say, well, I'm not a musical person, or I can't stand to hear myself sing, and I'd prefer no one else did either. And you know what? You may be right. (laughs) But that's why we keep the volume pretty high on Sunday mornings. (laughs) Here's what I believe. God has designed you as a person to worship Him. You are created to do this. It is in your DNA. You were made to draw attention to God. It doesn't matter if you can sing well or not. That's not the point. You're not going to get out until you learn how to praise God, 
how to honor Him, recognize who He is, regardless of what's happening in your life. At your lowest point, can you still sing or say or even just whisper, God, great is your faithfulness. And that's what Jesus did. On the cross, he quoted Psalm 22, a song of David. And there's no doubt that he knew not only the lyrics, but also the tune of this song. It begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then a few stanzas later, the song says, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. As He hung on the cross, waiting to die, Jesus worshipped His Father with a song that He learned as a child. And this is what we do every Sunday morning together when we sing. The music and the words stir us and they speak for us to God. But you don't just need Sunday morning for that. You can do that at home. You can do that on a walk. You can do that in your car alone. To take the next step of faith, these are the three things we need to learn how to do. Pray honestly, confess our sins specifically, and worship passionately. And then there's these two words of encouragement from chapter 5. The first is this. God's will is not what happens to you, but what you do with what happens to you. We've all asked the why question, right? We've all wondered what God was doing. And we're not alone. Authors of Scripture, David, Solomon, the Apostle Paul, great philosophers, Plato, Socrates, the church fathers and mothers, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, they've all wrestled with the problem of evil, and they never figured it out. Ah, but in my moment of crisis, I think I've got this. I'm going to be the one to figure it out. No. Taking the next step does not depend on finding an answer to the why question. Why would I say that? Because God's will is not what happens to you, but what you do with what happens to you. When we ask why, we tend to think that, well, maybe this is God's will for me. God's will that she left me. God's will that I'm broke. God's will that I'm fighting cancer. God's will that this terrible thing happened. And we can spend a lot of emotional and mental energy there. But here's the truth. Scripture doesn't hide this from us. It tells us straight out what God's will is. God's will can be discovered. So listen to this. Romans 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. 1 Thessalonians. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter. 
For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. The will of God is not a secret to discover. It's something to do or someone to be. Give thanks. Be grateful. Live a good life. Change. Grow up. Mature. Think good thoughts. That's God's will. You don't find God's will. You do God's will. And everything that comes into your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, things you can't control or understand, things you don't choose, well, you choose how to respond to all of those things. You decide who you'll be. God's will is that you take the next step of faith with gratitude, with hope, with love, with joy, with goodness. And the second encouragement is this. What you're going through is a valley and not a pit. In Lamentations 3, Jeremiah says, I called on your name, Lord, from the depths of a pit. Now, if you're in a pit, there's no way out. You're stuck. You're trapped. But in Lamentations 5, Jeremiah says, Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return, renew our days of old. What you're going through is a valley. It's not a pit. A pit isn't something you go through. It's, it's something you fall into and then you're stuck. A valley is different. It's something you, you pass through on your way to somewhere else. And to create a valley, you need a couple of mountains. And in between is the valley. So how do you know that there's another mountain over there? Well, because you're in a valley. The presence of the valley is evidence of the mountain. The reason I'm so confident of this is because of the life of Jesus. In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus began here in a high place with God, his Father. And then he descended. He became a man. And he he humbled himself. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. He went lower than anyone. Was it a pit? No. No. Because it says that that God then lifted Jesus up and he gave him the name that was above every other name. The journey of Jesus was from very high to very low and then to very high again. Two mountains and in between them was, was a valley. 33 years of Jesus serving his father in that valley, walking step by step in faith. And understand this, Jesus was not in that valley because God was unhappy with him. No, God was very pleased with Jesus. The Father was very pleased with his Son. God was with Jesus through his entire journey through that valley. If you have a broken heart this morning, I want you to listen. In your pain and suffering, 
God is whispering His love and encouragement to you. He is with you. And He is for you. He loves you. And you have an opportunity to take that next step of faith toward God. To demonstrate that you you trust Him. Lamentations 5 is, is written for life in the valley. Last two verses of chapter 5, the end of Lamentations, say this. Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. It's so full of hope. It's so encouraging. But then there's one more verse. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. The end. Wow. Well, a little bit pessimistic, right? I mean, Jeremiah is, Jeremiah is not the guy you want to go on a road trip with. So why did he end like that? I, I don't know if Jeremiah was a pessimist or not, but he was a realist. He was writing this while looking at the smoldering rubble of his homeland, surrounded by devastation and pain and disappointment and hurt. And in a very real sense, that's all of our lives. We live in the valley. Jesus has come down. He took on all of our punishment for us. He endured death. And then He rose again, defeating death and sin for us. But we're still here, living in a broken, fallen world as sinful, imperfect people. But there's hope. There is. Because the presence of the valley is evidence of the mountain. Your suffering does not contradict God's love for you. It demonstrates it. Because the presence of the valley is evidence of the mountain. The next step that you take is is the most important one. You got to figure it out. Pray honestly. Don't play games. Nothing passive aggressive with God. Just be honest. Figure out how to confess sin specifically. Not sin, but sins. Don't let that junk get in the way of who you can be. Ask God for help. And worship passionately. Acknowledge God for all that He is. Take time to honor Him. And don't forget, God's will isn't what happens to you as much as how you respond to what happens to you. This isn't a pit, but a valley that you are journeying journeying through on your way to what's next. Listen to these words as we close from Lamentations 3. Because of the Lord's great love, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail, not once. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray.
What an amazing promise, Father. Forgive us for forgetting this promise. Forgive us for not believing in this promise. Forgetting for getting distracted by what's in front of us. And what's in front of us is very real. Our feelings, our emotions, our anxieties, our concerns for ourselves and and others, people that we love. They're very real, God. And you know that. And you are with us. You are with us in everything. And you are for us, God. And I believe that you will help us, wherever we are in our journey, to take a next step. You desire that we would trust you. Trust that your love is that great. That your compassion is that steadfast. And that you are a faithful God. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.